How's it going, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Common Sense Finance Podcast, episode three. I'm here with my friend Nick. Nick, say what you have to say. Hello, hello, everyone. You're going to be excited for today's show, like always. Exactly. So, today we're going to talk less about current events and more about just investing subjects, investing topics in general. Uh, I feel like that way we'll have a better one. These episodes become more relevant as time goes on, and two, it, they might be more educational in that sense and more applicable to you because I we talk about current events all the time and we we like always like are caught up in the news. But if you're a long-term investor like Nick and I both are, these headlines on a daily basis really don't matter in the long term if anything they cause more fear than actual yeah they don't educate they cause fear and make you sell or hesitate to buy and things of that nature so we're going to go over a couple things today so first things first is nick and i recently watched a well let me go through let me do a rundown of what we're going through first so we're going to talk about a documentary that not documentary but like a real life inspired movie Nick and I both watched. We're going to talk about the difference between an asset and a liability in a personal finance sense. We're going to talk about dividends, in particular dividend reinvestment programs. Then we're going to talk about should you set guides for your portfolio. We're going to talk about IRAs, the difference between a Roth and a traditional, should you have one. And then Nick's going to go into the tax benefits provided by the two different IRAs. And then the last thing to close it out is we're going to talk about personal branding and how important your brand is and how important it is to keep the integrity of your brand. So before all that, let's talk about this movie Nick and I recently watched. So we recently watched The Founder. So it was a very good movie. For those of you who don't know, The Founder is a real life adaption, a film adaption of real life events, the founding and the creation of McDonald's. So Nick, what did you think of the movie? I have some opinions about the movie that are very, that it was very unethical. I'll tell you that. So, uh, morals was not there. If you want to watch this movie, it is available on Netflix. If you do not want spoilers of the movie, I would say skip two minutes in past what I'm this point right now. Okay. Nick, we're talking about the movie. I thought it was a very good movie. It was. It, it was the movie itself was good. Yeah. Ethically, though, it, it definitely shows you about ethics, mm-hmm. right? Like, like, yeah. like. Do you want to talk about the movie? Yeah, we're so going into the movie. So, so McDonald. I, I want to talk about the key of the movie before we talk about the movie. Okay. So the movie, the founder, talks about the founding of McDonald's. Two brothers. No, no, no. We'll even talk about that later because that's about the movie. But McDonald's, as you see it almost everywhere, you know, there's some even two in every city at a minimum. You're like, oh, my God, McDonald's, hamburgers. No, that's not the thing. McDonald's is about real estate. You see yeah. McDonald's all over the place. And in the movie, they, or in the documentary I watched, they say that McDonald's owns more places, more land than the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, that is a fact. 
Yeah. <laughs> and it's just crazy because many people just see it as a chain, like a franchise. And they're like, it's no difference than like a Burger King or a Wendy's. But no, the entire concept, the entire business model of a McDonald's is they own the lands beneath all of their locations. And I think that was, there were two big takeaways from the movie. I think the first one was like the business model of McDonald's and how underrated it really is and how Uh, powerful the corporation really is because they have complete say over their franchisees because not only do they have to abide by the franchise's rules, they have to abide by the lease, the rules on the lease because McDonald's to the landlord. So it's like McDonald's has absolute say and power over the franchise owner. The McDonald's. It's just, I thought it was really creative, really clever. And in the movie, the quote unquote founder, although he wasn't, the nicest guy in the world. I think you have to give him credit for the ingenuity that that uh, yeah. he had to do that. Even though he was named the founder, he was not the founder of the McDonald's that we know. Yeah, he's, he's the founder of the McDonald's that owns the lands. And then at the end of the movie, becomes the, the CEO and owner of McDonald's. Yeah, so the first takeaway I said is, like companies need to have business models. They have to be very strategic in their approach to build up, expand, and be a powerhouse in whatever market they're in. That's what McDonald's did. The second takeaway is you have to be, take it one of two ways. You either have to be ruthless to get what you want in business, or you really, if you want to be a good person, you should really carry that over into business. And in the movie, you see how, cold-hearted and calculated the main character is so the main character is ray Kroc. he's the person responsible for making mcdonald's what it is today there's no disputing that however you'll notice that his name is not mcdonald that's because he did not found the company the company was founded by two brothers mcdonald's the mcdonald brothers and he went in as a third partner and he's like you know what we're going to expand we are going to increase the, the amount of locations we have. And they're like, sure, it's a great idea. We haven't been successful in creating a chain. So they franchise him out. And he basically goes behind their back, creates the landowning company, buys all the land his franchises are now being built on. And he basically has so much wealth and power that even if they sue him, they'll go out of business before he does, even if they win. So he, they had no leverage whatsoever. So he forced them to sell the remaining stake of the company. They ended up getting no royalties as a result because there was a handshake deal that he went back on. And he cheats on his wife. And divorces her. And divorces her. Funniest thing, the Nick point. Nick, point, tell me what the funniest thing was about that movie. That he left her the house? Yeah. <laughs> that he took the mortgage, a second mortgage out on. This man. Filled up McDonald's. The guy, Ray, took out a mortgage, uh, took a mortgage out on his house without telling his wife to fund his operation as a third partner at McDonald's. He never he tells. His previous operations, not, before he entered into McDonald's, were basically all failures. Yeah. Like, he was. He- 
get a mortgage probably funding his other operations. All of his, <laughs> he was like a, probably wasn't the first. Yeah, he was like a middling salesman. Like he wasn't doing that well for himself. And he takes out a second mortgage without his wife knowing. He then divorces the wife and makes sure that she only gets like the house, the cars, but not a single share of McDonald's. So Nick and I were like, wait a minute. He really said, A, I'm not giving you a single stock in my company. And B, I'm giving you this house, but you're taking on the mortgage too. <laughs> at dinner. Yeah, at dinner. They so were it's like, a nice, lovely dinner that she cooked. And he goes, all nice and silent. I want a divorce. Yeah, and that was it. And he kept eating. <laughs> tragic. But many people see him as the face of McDonald's. He was he's he's written best selling books. Many people see him as one of the best like businessmen. He said himself that he was the founder, quote unquote. Of yeah, he McDonald's. took. He said he was the founder of McDonald's, and the two brothers really didn't get any recognition. And yeah, what was the reason why they didn't want a franchise out like like what Ray wanted to do? Well, I believe what it was is that the brothers wanted perfection. Yes. They wanted perfection in their store. And they want to make sure that if you're entering one McDonald's compared to another, they're the same exact one. They had the system to the T. 30 seconds in and out. The second you pay. Your food's right there. It's just an incredible system that they cared so much about that they didn't want to ruin the experience. Exactly. And they like the way we see fast food now was because of those two brothers. And Ray Kroc just really took the idea and ran with it. Because in the movie, they emphasize this. You used to have to go into a drive-in and it could take you 30 minutes to get to get your order and you'd have to wait for a waitress to take it out to you on the roller the roller skates like sonic still does as like a yeah. like a trendy thing to do get your but, orders wrong yeah you'd get your order wrong you'd have to be with like a rough crowd it wasn't very uh family oriented yeah mcdonald's came to the scene they cut out all labor costs because they had no waitresses people got their own uh they got their own uh meals their own orders they got rid of silverware because you, yeah. you used to get a metal tray and silverware they had to put back mcdonald's some had hmm? some people would steal them they just drive home exactly and, it back. and mcdonald's what they did was like you know what let's just do wraps let's wrap our sandwiches in paper or plastic and it's like you save a lot of money that way and it worked for them they were cutting a lot of corners but mm-hmm. the right corners to cut Yes, yes. They they didn't lose any value in the food and the service to the people. And they had precision when they made everything, cost controlled everything. It was like yeah. Walmart, their business model applied to a restaurant. Down to the second on how long the fries should be cooked. Exactly. Like the degree. Like they were arguing about a 50 degree difference in French fries being cooked. <laughs> so I think yeah, the two big takeaways were if you're in business, you have to have a business model that differentiates you and sets you up to be really scale. McDonald's really did that. And secondly, if you really want to get by in business, you either have to, like, you might have to be a jerk. I personally, Never. 
handshake deal. Huh? Never do a handshake deal. Yeah. My advice to you listening is if you're into getting into business or something, not everyone has the best intent, your best intention. Don't be naive. Always don't look, don't, I'm not saying solely look out for yourself, but always make sure you're getting what you deserve at the end of the day. And Cover your bases. Make sure you're not going to get screwed over at any point. Yes. Because. No, I definitely agree. Because definitely. if you had the royalty that they agreed upon on the handshake agreement, yeah. I think it was what? $100 million a year? Yeah. Yeah, they would have received $100 million a year in royalties. And I think it was a 1% royalty. Yeah. Ma- maybe it was $10 million. Maybe it was $10 million. 10 million like cash and then 1% every year. 100 million seems too much though. That means they're making $10 billion in sales a year. Ah, that makes no, sense. No, it was the cash, cash first. Like, like they would get 10 million in cash. No, no, and so like a, so like they, they, they must have 10 billion in revenue a year. Looking it up. But um, the point stands like people are jerks in the business world. And I recommend not going down to their level. I think be the bigger person, big, bigger man, woman. I think you should always take the high road and be the bigger person. So, so it was $2.7 million. They agreed to $2.7 million lump sum, ownership of their original uh, restaurant, and a 1% annual royalty. Mm-hmm. But then Ray refuses on the royalty settlement and instead offers a handshake deal. So, so like, yeah. like we said before, don't don't do don't uh, take a handshake. Get yeah. everything in writing. The royalties, like you said, would have been in the area of a hundred million dollars a year. Yeah, that's nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that's that was our opinion on the movie. I highly recommend you go watch it. I think it was yeah. very inform informative, very helpful. Like you got you got you got to learn a lot of things about business just from an hour and a half. It was a short movie too. No, it wasn't very long. Yeah, and he's a good actor. Michael Keaton's a good actor. He's the main character. The guy from Parks and Rec played one of the McDonald brothers. So. The guy from The Office played the CFO for Ray Kroc. So, yeah. a lot of right. lot of decent actors were in the, the guy from, uh, I think he's either The Conjuring or Insidious, played one of the, the, the his new the, wife's the rest husband. Of, yeah. 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 So, it has some right. de- a decent cast. <laughs> All right. But now we're done with the movie. Guys, I'm sorry that wasn't two minutes. He skipped ahead. He had to skip 12 minutes ahead because we talked a decent amount about the movie. But it's a good movie. Good movie. It was a good movie. Um, so now we're going to get into the difference between an asset and a liability. So this is a very important con- uh, concept to understand, especially for those getting into learning personal finance. So this is covered in really good detail and Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Like, I read the book over the summer, and I thought I had a decent grasp of personal finance because, you know, like, A, I'm majoring in the field, 
B, I've read books. I watch, I read, pod, I listen to podcasts. I read the news. I do everything I can to stay up to date on like these financial topics. And I feel like I still learned a lot of things. And the book was, is really geared towards basics, like towards really beginner level uh, people when it comes to personal finance. And I still learned a lot. So I recommend checking out Rich Dad, Poor Dad, a very excellent book. And what's the difference between an asset and a liability? So Nick, do you want to give the, the technical definition of an asset and a liability? An asset is something that you own or money that you're expecting. It's, 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 it's a good thing. Assets are great. It's, it's what brings value to yourself or to your company. Assets are cash. Uh, money you're, you're expecting from someone, you know, in the accounting field, we call it an accounts receivable. Um, stocks. Stocks are definitely an asset. Rental property. Anything that provides growth to you. How about you, Ant? Do you want to add on to it? Yeah, so those are definitely assets and liabilities. And, and Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he makes the big... Um, makes it a big point that this is not the accounting definition of an asset and a liability because like an asset is pretty much anything you purchase is an asset <laughs> in the accounting field <laughs> right like I can purchase tissues that's an asset a t-shirt that's an asset until you use it you, it's an asset a liability is something that it's kind of like a financial burden where it's like a debt pretty much a debt that's any kind of that's pretty much the, oh yeah, like loans. Pretty much any time, any type of obligation financially is a is a, a liability. However, in accounting, Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad Poor Dad, puts it into a different perspective. He gives it his own twist. So, an asset is anything that's going to generate you cash, and a liability is anything that's going to make you spend more money. So, in accounting, buying a home to live in like with no rental income is an asset because it adds value to your total net worth and your capital. However, in rich dad, poor dad, he makes a very strong case that buying a house is a liability. And he doesn't say buying liabilities are necessarily wrong, but you have to be financially able to pay to buy a liability. Like many people see like, okay, buying jewelry is a, is a waste. Like that might be a waste. But he's like, you know what? If you don't have the f income to buy a house, you shouldn't. Because look at this. Yes, you might be able to realize appreciation on the home when you sell it. However, when are you going to sell your home? Maybe You might live in a house for 10 to 20 years before you sell it. might live in it forever. Yeah, or you might live in it forever. It might be a generational house. If that's the case, your money is tied in, into that property. If you use leverage to purchase it, you have to make mortgage payments. If you're in an expensive area, you have to pay taxes on the property. You have to pay utility expenses on the property as well. That's a lot of money. You might be spending upwards of $2,000 a month. Probably more if you're in, in our taxes in our area, a lot more. <laughs> like a significant amount of money to have your house. So he makes the argument that that's a liability because you're living in that house is costing you money on a regular basis. Cash is not coming in. The biggest issue is that many people overlook cash flow. Like people look at how, okay, my expenses, how much money I'm making. 
but cash flow is a serious topic, and many people overlook it. Important topic. What did you say that, Nick? I said it's a very important topic. Yeah, we talk about dividends and their ability to pay off their obligations with their cash on hand. Like companies is very important. And that's like we also say on this on this podcast that cash on hand is a very overlooked factor when it comes to companies' financial well-being. Uh, we, I was talking about it in my grad course this Monday. It's funny that you mentioned that. I think it was Microsoft in 20, 2015, I believe. They had more cash on hand than Apple. It was like one hundred over one hundred billion. It has to be mil. I think it would be million. But I, I'll look it up. But they had they had a lot of money on. Yeah, hand. a lot. And Apple too, but Apple for a certain period wasn't paying a dividend. They were just keeping the money, just sitting there. Mm-hmm. And you know, probably investors were. You're upset. Like, you know, you have all this cash. You could pay us back. Apple and Microsoft have so much cash. Like, it's insane. But, so, what would be an asset then and what would be a liability? So, I said buying a a house for yourself should be considered a liability, not a house. However, there's this thing called house hacking where you can buy a multifamily, you can live in one of the units, rent out one or two other units within the property and they pay off all your expenses for living there. That's an asset because you're getting positive cash flow every month or you're netting zero. You're not, not losing cash flow every month. So in that case, that would be an asset. You have to build up assets that can allow you to afford liabilities. Like you can buy an expensive chain, you can buy an expensive car, you can buy an expensive house, but do you have the ability to afford it? Mm-hmm. And the way to do that is you have to accumulate assets that generate you cash flow on a regular basis that allow you to make these large purchases. Now, now I found it. CNBC post, published an article November 7th, 2019. Just, just last year, basically. Microsoft currently has the largest pile of cash at $136.6 billion. Oh my God. As of last quarter. Oh my God. Apple had $100 billion. Berkshire had $128 billion. Google, Alphabet, the, the parent of Google, is $121 billion. You know, it's funny, you know what's funny though? Huh? They can't Most afford dividends. Not even that. They can't afford to buy Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think many people have to understand that liabilities actually create expenses and assets actually create income. You need to generate enough ass you need to build enough assets that generate you enough income. To pay for to afford those liabilities and then afford, thus afford the expenses. Like rental income. If you get rental income and, you know, you reinvest it maybe in another property. 
mm-hmm. that'll get you rental income. That's, you know, you're receiving cash. You, you have an expense, but that expense is going to another asset that is building you cash and like dividends. And that's exactly what we're about to talk about right now. You want to consistently reinvest any yes. gains you make on any investment, real estate, consider buying another property, dividends, reinvest your dividends back into either the stock that paid you the dividend or buy another position to diversify yourself. And disclaimer, this is not financial advice. I was just about to say that. We're yes. not- these, so are suggest- these are suggestions based on our own personal experiences and readings and our own education. Person. Yeah, personal preference. But it would probably be in your best interest to consistently reinvest any return that you make on investment. If you, like I said, you can buy your, you can buy another rental property once you generate enough cash from a first rental property, and with dividends. Mm-hmm it's honestly much easier to do because you don't have to stockpile your money until you can afford a down payment. Yeah. In this case, the barrier to entry is so low with fractional shares. You can buy 50 cents worth of a stock if with a drip or the drip program. Drip so, program. Nick, and, you, yeah, yeah, just really quick, you know, as, as we talk about the drip program, you know, there's obviously the question about taxes. So if you, if you enable the drip program, that automatically reinvests your dividends into uh, buying another share. Or if you just turn it off and you take the dividend to buy another position in another stock, you're like, oh, I just took the money and reinvested it. I shouldn't pay taxes on it. Um, no, you do. <laughs> even, if you reinv- even if you didn't touch it, you had the drip program automatically reinvest it, it's still taxable money. Yeah. But it helps you, you know, in the cost basis, you, you know, when you sell it, that establishes your cost basis. And that, that, that was just what I really wanted to say before we move on, because like whether you reinvest or you take the money, you pay taxes on it. There's no, there's no tax benefit to reinvesting. Except in an IRA, which and that we'll, we'll be talking about later. Yeah. As I say, like you don't escape taxes doing the drip. However, one, okay, so first of all, a DRIP stands for a Dividend Reinvestment Program. It's where your brokerage automatically reinvests your dividend back into the stock that paid it. For example, if I have AT&T and they pay me $0.50 cents per share this quarter, they'll reinvest the $0.50 cents per share back into AT&T stock. So, for example, you can have, let's say you have $1,000. Let's say you have a... 193 shares in AT&T. Okay, you have 190 shares of AT&T. They pay you around 7% a year. That can roughly buy you 12 shares of AT&T stock per year. Per year. If you, re- if you consistently reinvest it. And that's just for this year. What you, people misunderstand is they're like, oh, well, it's only 12 stocks a year. That's incorrect. It's oh. 12 stocks this year, but those 12 stocks are also paying you a dividend. And then the next year, the additional stocks on top of that are paying you a dividend. And it's a constant snowball until you accumulate a significant position in the company and there you have a significant source of dividend income from that and company. Potentially, like not even 12 st- uh, shares a year. You get the three shares, let's say, let's say they pay March, June, September, December, right? You get the three shares in uh, March. Now you have a three extra shares by the time the next dividend payout comes. 
So you could potentially like like obviously it's not a bigger number, but you know, and if you keep pushing more money into the stock, you keep buying additional shares. You can get 13, 14, maybe 15 shares a year. And then just keep adding. Yeah, Nick and I were just talking about this before we started recording. So the amount of shares I get per year for my reinvestments in some of my positions was how much I, I originally was able to afford in some of these stocks when I first started investing. So I've only been investing for three years. And the fact that I'm just off dividends, investing as much as I would have starting out, it says a lot. Like, I know it's not, I'm not making a serious amount of money, but not billionaires. <laughs> we're not millionaires. We're not even close to it. We're not even, we're not in a six figure club either, but we're, I think we're on like a right path of like some yeah. kind of financial security. And I think dividends are key in doing so. And I think you should look into a dividend reinvestment program. Robinhood just launched theirs within the last year or so. Yeah, recently. It happened with the fractional shares. Oh, so let's, let's talk about that. So you might be asking, but wait, if AT&T is $40 a share, $30 a share, and I'm getting a 50 cent dividend, how does that make sense? I'm not going to be able to- stock for 50 cents here? That's not how it works, Nick. That's not how it works. Okay. You're going to get a percentage equivalent. So it's going to be, let's say, what, 50 cents divided by 30? That's the percentage of a stock you're going to get. So off the top of my head, it's like 1 60th of an AT&T stock. Yeah. Yeah. But that means you're getting 1 60th of their dividend. Yeah. Yeah. You still get the percentage you've paid. Yeah. Of dividend but that's, that's only per share if you want 60 shares you're getting a share a quarter <laughs> so you gotta look at it like that and you might say well 60 shares i'm like it might look like a lot now but if you reinvest those dividends and you slowly put money away every every paycheck it's the way to go again this is financial this is not financial opinion, advice opinion i'll I'm yes. I'm doing the I'm I'm gonna put the disclaimer at the end now because I feel like <laughs> Justin Case. I don't wanna I don't wanna proud I don't wanna corner. interrupt, but I wanna cover my base at the same time. <laughs> and you can even do drips with uh, index funds. Yes. So um so like I know VOO is an index fund I use, the Vanguard uh S P five hundred index fund. They pay like a one point five, one point seven percent. Uh, dividend payout yeah. yeah and it's that's honestly it's not that bad of a yield it's about it's higher than apples uh, it's about the same as microsoft <laughs> like it's a decent, decent yield and you put that away people can index funds are i think if you do not want to worry about your investments and you just want to put your money away and hold it and never look at it again index funds are the way to go and if you can have a drip program on top of that buying you more shares without you realizing it's a complete win-win Anthony, what's an index fund? Just for uh, our list. Uh, might, might as well get into that. See, I throw <laughs> terms around and Nick's over here making sure that I explain myself. <laughs> an index fund, so it's like, instead of buying a, a share of a company, you're buying a share of a bunch of different companies. So what happens is you're basically giving your money to a third party and they're taking the money you give them and they're spreading it across in this case, 500 stocks that are represented in the S&P 500. Yeah. This 
index funds can track anything you want. There are index funds that only track tech stocks. Yeah. That only track companies that just went public within the last year. Real estate. There's a company, yeah, real estate. There's a company that tracks Elon Musk tweets and how his tweets are going to affect the market. Yeah, like there's index funds on everything. And they try to match the performance of whatever they're trying to track. So, and, and you said it's a third party. Like, do, do I not use my brokerage to buy it? Oh, you use your brokerage, Nick. What oh, happens okay. is, so you're giving, if it's a Vanguard index fund in this case, Vanguard is the company that's investing the money for you. And they make all the adjustments. It's like you're putting your money into a, a pool. And they're investing, everyone, they collect all of these funds from all the people buying the index funds. And they, they disperse it amongst all these different stocks. And you're getting a piece of the pie. Of the so entire pool. Ticker symbol on your brokerage account. Say that again? So you just look up their bro- uh, their ticker symbol. Exactly. Exactly. Perfect. Okay. Thank you, Ant. So that's the basics. I think drips are really good, and drips can be very good in an IRA. Nick. Hey. We're talking about IRAs, and Nick's mouth is salivating right now at the thought of. <laughs> talking about taxes so nick i'll let you get into it so like anthony thank you anthony like anthony said you know we're going to be talking about an ira people call them ira i don't i i, I highly suggest you don't you sound like an idiot no. i'm sorry <laughs> so an ira stands for an individual retirement account so there's two types of iras out there that we can use one's a roth ira and one's a traditional uh, ira and I guess we can start talking about what's the difference about them. And then we can talk about what's the same. Like why, like why should I pick one or the other? Or both. Or both. You could do both. And I, I, I will be talking about that. So a traditional IRA, that's where we'll start off, um, is, is good for uh, tax reasons right now. So when you fund your IRA, you fund it, your traditional IRA, you fund it with pre-tax money. And you might be like, how do I do that? Do I tell my employer? Uh, I don't have direct deposit. He just cuts me a check. Do I have to tell him about any of these IRA account information? You do not. You, you fund it with your post-tax paychecks, your net paychecks. And when you file your tax return at the end of the year, they'll give you the taxes you paid on it back to you. So it's essentially pre-tax money. And you're saying, okay, so perfect. So I get my taxes back. Why is it something I don't want to use? Well, the reason why you're paying pre-tax money is your money will eventually or hopefully grow until you reach retirement age and able to uh, you know, uh, gain distributions from your IRA. And those distributions will be taxable then. And you're like, oh, geez. So, so the whole point of a traditional IRA is the whole mindset is taxes are, are high now and will be lower in the future. So I would rather invest pre-tax now and lower in the future to, uh, when, when I gain those distributions. Mm-hmm. So, the whole, uh, so the whole concept here is you're not paying taxes on any contributions you make into the IRA. First and foremost, an IRA is not an investment in itself. 
some people yeah. might believe like it's buying stock. It is not. It's like opening up a checking account or a brokerage account. You're investing within an IRA. So you can own individual stocks, index funds within your IRA. Yes. A traditional IRA is anything you contribute is there's no tax. The only downside is you have to pay whatever tax on your uh, withdrawals. And that depends on your tax bracket at the time of retirement. Your income tax, your ordinary. Yeah. And then Nick makes the point of the one argument for the traditional IRA is if you're in a high income bracket now, high uh, tax bracket now, when you retire, you're expected to be in a lower tax bracket. Thus, your income tax would be much lower because the percentage you would pay is lower at a later date. Yeah. And now we move on to a Roth IRA. So a Roth IRA, in my opinion, is great. You get to contribute into it post-tax money. So whatever paycheck you get direct deposited or printed on your check, you pay, you invest it into your IRA, like Anthony said, into stocks or um, mutual funds, I believe. Um, but when you retire and you get to withdraw the money, it's tax-free. Yeah. Those dividends, those capital gains, if you sell any stocks within it, tax-free. Like, like it's, it's, you know, and, and the saying is, I pay high tax, I pay low taxes now, and I feel like the tax rates are going to increase later on. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather pay the tax now, receive the benefit later on. Disclaimer, I have a Roth IRA, but I'll be as, as do I. <laughs> but I think if you're someone around our age, you're just starting college, you're in college, or you just have your first job, the Roth IRA, in my opinion, would make more sense because... Yeah you're going to be probably in the lowest tax bracket you'll ever be in now. Even in retirement, your tax bracket, as a college student, you're paying probably, you're in the lowest tax bracket possible, possibly, unless you're one of these gurus online selling online courses and faking. Courses. Yeah, you're doing all this nonsense online. You're going to be in a very low tax bracket now. Or you could be Mark Zuckerberg and find found Facebook in college. But you're probably going to be in a very low tax bracket now. So all contributions you make now you're going to be in a low tax bracket anyway. You probably, some of your, you might, you might not even get taxed based on how low your tax bracket is now. So any contribution you make now. Uh, but, but quick, quick thing is you can't contribute more than what you make a year. Taxable income. Yeah. And I'm going to get to how much you can contribute later on. It's just, I just wanted to point that out. You can't contribute anything. Yeah. yeah if I know. you make 2000, you can't contribute 3000. Yeah. If you just have cash laying in the bank, you'll get, you'll get, um, uh, they call it an, uh, excise, uh, excise tax. Yeah. So. But I, like the point I just want to make is you could put $10 or yeah, yeah. $10 a month away and you can have a couple hundred thousand dollars just by doing that on a consistent basis by the time you're with the drip program. Yeah. With a drip program. Perfect. Yeah. And, um, what I wanted to say is another good thing about a Roth IRA is since you invested into it, your contributions, we call it, is post-tax, you already pay taxes on it. Let's say you need to withdraw some money, there was an emergency, you, you can withdraw only your contributions mm-hmm. and not get affected. Mm-hmm. So you put in, let's say 5K, and it, it went up to 15K, 
as long as the IRS looks at it as any contributions you take out or any money that you take out, they think it's contributions. They, like they're not gonna they're not gonna be like, oh, show us show us that these aren't gains. As long as you invested in it five k and you take five k out, you're okay. You won't get hit with any taxes or penalties or fees at a federal income tax uh, bracket rate. And again, I want to clarify, when I say when you retire and take those distributions tax-free, it's federal income tax. I'm talking about federal. Some states may tax you, but they're going to tax you regardless with a traditional or a Roth, but you won't pay any federal income tax on your Roth IRA distributions. Mm. Now, that's why it's we, important to own a corporation. I just no, that's that's, <laughs> that's it. I whole a whole other topic, whole whole other episode. Next episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I just want to reiterate that with the Roth IRA, there's no immediate tax benefit right now, but it's you know long-term investors, you got to look at it for the long term. Um, tradition, uh, traditional IRAs, your contributions are taxed now, uh, not taxed now, but taxed later on. Now let's talk about the, the similarities. Like Anthony was saying, you know, why not invest in both? Well, you have a limit of up to $6,000 uh, to contribute in either. Like you can't contribute six or six. Is it it's got to be either three or three. Huh? Is it six or 65? 6,500? No, no, 6,000. Okay. And then 7,000 if you're above, if you're 50 or above. They call it a cash. Yeah. 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 So, so like Anthony said, you could invest in both. You're like, Hey, maybe I could seek the tax benefit now and also have a tax benefit later on. You can invest, let's say 3000 here, 3000 there, but the maximum it could be in all of your IRAs is 6,000 if you're under 50. And so, then like, so I can only contribute, let's say I have 3000 in my Roth so far contributed. This year, yes. You can only contribute 3000 to my traditional. Yes, per taxable year. Okay. Yes. Because that's and, what I just learned. Huh? That's something new I just learned. Uh, <laughs> so, so like I said before, I want to make it clear that you can only contribute up to $6,000 or if you make less than $6,000 a year, that amount you can't make three thousand dollars a year and contribute six thousand you will be taxed you'll be losing money for no reason mm -hmm. so so always make sure you're on you're you're realizing your contributions and making sure you won't go above that uh, threshold um now what happens if you're really tight on money and you want to avoid that 10 percent penalty the irs has um has a couple of circumstances that you could take out that money without paying the 10%, but potentially paying income tax on it, potentially. Um, and I'm talking about traditional IRAs and any contributions, any, any capital gains you've earned from a Roth IRA. Like I said before, you can take out any contributions that you put into a Roth IRA, just not any capital gains. But this is the circumstances that you won't get hit with the 10% penalty. And it's for a home purchase. If you're a first-time home buyer, you can take out up to $10,000 from your IRA. So 
it's not bad, you know, they're giving you a break, right? Um, let's say you want to adopt a child or you're, you're having a child, you know, giving birth. You can withdraw up to $5,000 without penalty. And if, um, and if uh, you're married, you can take out up to $5,000 in each from each of your IRAs, if both of you have one. So 5,000 from one spouse, 5,000 from the other. Um, you can also take out uh, for qualified higher education expenses. They really didn't put a limit on it. There is no dollar limit. Don't go crazy because remember, this is your retirement money that you know you would be hoping to you know get. Yeah. Uh, and that dollar, there is no dollar limit on expenses that fall under the rules that include tuition, fees, books, and supplies. Um, and it's not just for yourself. You can also use your IRA funds or your distributions to help pay for an immediate family member. In certain cases, like your spouse, your children, and if you are a grandparent at the time, maybe your grandchildren. Um, room and board is a bit you know, tricky. Um, they allow it for students who are attending it for more than half a year. So you know, always keep tax documents or records showing that your child or whoever you're giving the money to has been attending the school for more than half, half time. As Nick said, consider how much you're withdrawing from these accounts because it is your retirement, it is your financial yeah. security at an age where you might not be physically able to work a full-time job anymore. Yeah. So don't go crazy. I, I, honestly, I wouldn't even touch your retirement savings for any of these unless there's a legitimate emer emergency. Yeah. And then the last one that, you know, there, there's obviously many, but the common ones are, the, which I'll be talking about, the last one is death or if you're totally and permanently disabled. Uh, you're able to um, tap your IRA funds without penalty. And if you die, your account beneficiary or estate will be able to do so, uh, making withdrawals from your IRA. So, Nick, I have a few questions that I just want to go run through that came to mind for me when I, you were explaining this. Yeah. So there was actually, I read online some places that you can use an IRA as a form of an emergency fund because you're able to withdraw your principal without any penalty. A Roth IRA. Yes. A Roth IRA. So do you think that's a good idea? So like, let's say I have a thousand dollars for emergencies should I put that into a secure investment, like maybe bonds within my IRA and then collect much, a much higher interest in a bank, let's say, and then be able to withdraw it if it at a moment's notice? Okay. So, okay. <laughs> um, well, when you say, you know, you're getting a higher interest rate than a bank, you're not receiving those capital gains that we'll call interest. It's, it'll stay there. And hey, you could use those interest monies that you left in the IRA to, re, to invest in a, in a stock or keep it in a bond, right? Mm -hmm. So save it as an emergency fund. I mean, you also got to keep in mind when we say that the contributions are tax-free, some states might not look at it as uh, your withdrawing your uh, contribution. It could be looked at as income. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, at a, that's at a state level. But for a federal, it's, it's tax-free um, you know, like people that want to withdraw it would have to look at their uh, state that they live in, make sure they, they, they see that 
you withdrawing contributions is an income. It's contributions that you made pre-tax, post-tax. Would I use it as a savings account? Not really. Like you can't do like a, like a, I don't know, um, money market account. I know it's not great, but what happens if the market tanks? Like yeah. it's not here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like what happens if we have another, you know, virus stock crash? Keep it in a money market account uh, at a bank savings account. But as a as an emergency fund, I feel like you should always keep it for emergencies, not to invest. But that's my personal opinion. And then this goes into another point that I want you to either clarify. So I've read that you can't use an IRA or a Roth, like a Roth or a traditional, as collateral mm-hmm. for a loan. You can't. Is that because, true? Because it's not a liquid. It's not a liquid account. You would have to sell the investments, I believe. And then, but you would be because, penalized. Because it's cheap value. Like even, I think even like a brokerage account, you can't, uh, you can't sell anything. You would have to put in a money market account mm-hmm. until, until, you know, you pay off your debts or anything. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I read it that, um, that I, I haven't dealt with it, but I'm pretty sure you would have to liquidate your accounts. Because, like, again, like, you know, you show up to the bank, you have a 100K stock portfolio, you know, March happens when the coronavirus hits. You're at 25K. <laughs> I mean, that's the best way to make 25K. You got to start off with 100. <laughs> and so the last question is, have you ever heard of a backdoor a Roth? Yes. So that's when you're converting a traditional IRA to a Roth. I was scared you were going to mention that today. Because it, it is, I'm not saying it's tricky, tricky, but I tried like quickly looking at it and th- there's just all these rules that you have to abide by because you are taking pre-tax money, uh, yeah, pre-tax money and putting it into a post-tax um, IRA. Uh, I-, I would definitely save this question for next time. Mm-hmm. Uh, to give me, like there, there is definitely a way, I'm not saying there isn't. It's just, there's a lot of, tax law that goes into it whether you know you're looking at um standard deduction or your itemized deduction and you know taking little by little to convert it so we'll we'll save that question for next time for those of you who don't know the concept of a backdoor ira it was it became tax law i think in 2008 or 2009 it was a big Mm -hmm. deal you're able to roll over a traditional ira into your roth ira so you would able to over, go above your yearly contribution in a sense because you can do the six thousand roll over an additional whatever from the existing uh, tra- uh, traditional IRA and that would be able to boost your Roth IRA savings. But there is some tax law involved, so and and and, there, and it's it doesn't count as a contribution because you are liquidating your traditional account. You're taking the the brokerage that you have it with or the firm that you have it with will hand you a check from your traditional IRA and you have so many days to deposit it straight into your Roth IRA. Like you can't, you know, uh, deposit into your checking account. You go to the casino, start playing. It doesn't work that way. It's very strict. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or you get risk of paying 10% and it being taxable income. So, so that's why I, I don't want to say anything wrong then. We'll look. We'll look further into the into this. A, a topic for the 
a topic for next episode, a topic for next episode. <laughs> but just it was just an interesting thing. It's been a kind of a it was like a, a hot topic when it came to retirement accounts and IRAs. So I figured, you know, just give giving everyone a little taste of what's to come. Yeah, no, no, definitely it is interesting. That's why I don't want to get anything wrong and I'd rather give out the facts than than satire this this podcast. And then I the question and, is what are you going to say? No, no, no. What were you going to say? I was like, so the the underlying question is now for the people listening is, should you have an IRA? Answer is yes. Yes. I think in, in any sense, honestly, I think, I mean, I think the Roth is definitely the preferable option, but let's say you accidentally opened up a traditional, I wouldn't, I'd just so let I, it rock. Have I, two. I think, yeah, have two. Um, I personally think it's a, you spend, put it away and don't look at it type of thing and mm-hmm. personally for me it's i want to have some kind of i want to have some kind of financial security earlier than oh we didn't talk about this you have, you have to be 59 and a half to withdraw from an, yeah. an ira it's a retirement account yeah the biggest the biggest caveat is you have to be rather up there in age to feel the benefits of your retirement account yeah if you want to feel the benefits of your contributions to a brokerage account <laughs> that's what anthony and i were talking about recently yeah. so what nick and i believe uh the way to go for us is we're going to make some smaller contributions to a roth ira because you know small contributions now in 20 years i think it was every dollar you spend now is 27 dollars in 20 years oh something something to that effect and if you make it 40 years, it's probably going to be in the $50 range. So just putting away a few dollars a month now can really add up. So if you put a, like a few hundred dollars a year into your Roth IRA, that's could be a, that could be a, a significant game changer when you include and, compound interest and everything. And if you, if you could afford it, just max out your, it's only 6k, max it out, forget about it. And then just continue, you know, funding your bro you know your brokerage account your daily investing account Mm -hmm. but that's you know for later when you get a full-time job and make more than i want to say 25k let's say yeah and i think that's definitely a good way to honestly if you don't want to do if you're okay with retiring at 60 and some people are some people want to work that that's all power to you that's what you want to do put all put as much as you can into your roth ira max it out every year my my outlook is I don't want to retire at fifty nine. I want to have some kind no. of secure, I want some financial freedom, independence. Maybe in my forties, and I 40s think by investing now into a non retirement account, I'll be able to feel the benefits of doing so at a much earlier age than fifty nine. You and, know, you don't the tax benefits. You know, like like we said in the beginning with dividends. Every time you receive a dividend, it gets taxed. Um, oh, and I really quick, I, I don't think I really mentioned it heavily with the IRAs. Um, the Roth IRA, when you invest, your capital gains are tax-free as well. Mm-hmm. Like with the DRIP program, as long as it, it's in the Roth IRA, it's tax-free. I just wanted to say that really quick. Any income, any gain that you realize yes. within a Roth is tax-free. Like any, yeah. any money that you get that you didn't start out with is tax-free, like in yeah. any sense. But with- going to the daily investing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to call it daily investing. I don't know what the real term is. It, you know, people say brokerage account, but an IRA is really a brokerage account, but for retirement. 
So I'm just going to call it a daily investing that Anthony and I have. Um, you know, you don't seek the benefit of, you know, your retirement accounts, but you get the money now. And being a long-term investor, you, you seek tax benefits. I'm not saying they're the best or the greatest, but you're not paying full, full tax bracket for them. I just wanted mm -hmm. to mention that. You know, long-term is definitely tax beneficial. Yeah, if you... Um... The longer you hold your stocks, you have tax benefits that you wouldn't ordinarily have working a full-time job. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying quit your job and only invest in <laughs> dividends because that's kind of stupid. You're going to have to work a full-time job regardless. You know, with these companies cutting their dividends, I'm not saying yeah. all of them, but, you know, there is no true financial freedom. But if you only have, I think it's, uh, I think Robert from Rich Dad Poor Dad said, if you have one stream of income, you're one step away from uh, being homeless. Yes. And Mark Cuban, so Mark Cuban would always say for your emergency fund, you should save three to six months worth of your income, yearly salary. He'd bump that up to a year because oh, wow. he's like, so many people are getting unemployed and they don't have another source of income that they need something to fall back on while they're looking for the other job. Oh, wow. And I think it's true. Like you're one source, you're one source away from getting, from being broke for being in financial ruin yeah so i think any kind of income source you can develop at a young age will be great i think in the future my dividends are going to be a significant income source am i going to touch them am i going to play with them no i'm not i'm going to reinvest everything but <laughs> the concept is that, that that's there for me like, i could utilize it if i needed to same thing with nick <laughs> yeah no, no, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with Anthony. Um, and, and like I said, you know, you should always have multiple. I'm not saying have a hundred, you know, that would be great if you could, but don't have only one stream of income. Um, look at me, I have three jobs. <laughs> Plus I invest. <laughs> yeah, like any kind of income you can create now, even passive income, that's a great thing to have, like, Stocks are a great form of passive income yeah. for the future. Real estate's a great form of passive income. The only thing is it takes a while to develop. And I think while you're young, you have the free time to, you can work these jobs, like other jobs here and there to save up money and put it away. And I think you may do the hard work now. And then when you're in your thirties or forties, you're going to reap the benefits of what you did. And Anthony, do you want to mention anything about selling old stuff? I know, I know you do it. So, you're talking about, oh, you're talking about, eBay. yeah, 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 yes. Yeah. So, like, I guess you can call it a side hustle type thing. I try to make money wherever I can. And a big thing I get into is eBay. So, I'm not saying I'm a, a master at eBay. I'm not making thousands of dollars in sales on a monthly basis, but I do, I do pretty well for myself. Like it's, it's not like I cannot live off this, but it supplements a college student's needs income, yearly income. And I'm only just, I'm selling clothes that I don't like anymore. that don't fit me, things of that nature. Um, and I make some, I make money that otherwise I make money on items that I otherwise would have thrown away or donated to put it that mm -hmm. way. Um, and I bought, hmm? I bought a, or racket, racketin. Yeah. I bought a racketin, uh, honey 
money. You get a lot of points back, cash back on that. So I think that's like, you know, savings here and there add up. If you can make money here and there, it adds up. If you pay for stuff with a credit card that has great cash back and pay for stuff that you are already going to pay for, don't say, hey, I get cash back for buying a new iPhone when mm-hmm. you didn't need it. That's not the way to go. But if you need to buy groceries, find a credit card that will give you 5% cash back on groceries. Exactly. And like any money you can save here and there, it adds up. You can put it away towards creating that income source, whether it's through dividends or, you know, you create a business of your own. Maybe you want to make eBay a full-time thing. Who knows? Like those kind of things can happen, but you have to put the groundwork. You have to lay out the groundwork at a young age and it's going to be some hard work involved and you're going to have to put a lot of effort into it. But I think once things get rolling, and you're in your 30s or 40s, you're really going to thank yourself that you put in the hard work at a younger age. So that's all about the passive income. We spoke about investing, and we spoke a little bit about brokerage accounts. And there's one thing that I read up on over the past week, and that was like, what kind of strategy and approach should you have when constructing a portfolio? And there are a lot of different approaches that you can take so I read a recent uh, approach that I found very interesting because it addresses several different questions and concerns people have when it comes to investing. And that's, I want to buy low and sell high. How can I do that? And when do I sell? When do I sell my stock? When is it a good time to sell? And I think I might have some kind of recommendation suggestion an idea here it's not original it's in a book that i read and so what you do is you construct your portfolio and let's say you're in 50 percent equity so you have 50 percent stocks and then you're in 50 percent bonds right so you're not it's not a conservative portfolio it's not a, it's not a uh, an aggressive portfolio by any means but it's a very balanced portfolio. This is probably more applicable as you get older in age. But what you do is, so it's 50, let's say the percentage is 50-50. If you want to make it more aggressive, you can make it 80-20, 90-10, whatever. As soon as the percentage goes up on one of your positions, you sell it and you funnel it back so the, the balance are the same. So let's say you... We're 50 50 in stocks. So you have a, you have $500 and you have $500 in stocks, $500 in bonds. Let's say the stocks goes up to a thousand dollars. So now your portfolio is worth $1,500. You're going to sell half of the 1500. Sorry. You're going to sell half of the gain on your stocks. So now you're going to have 750 in stocks, 750 in bonds. You split the portfolio back to 50 50 you realized a, a big profit on yeah. your stocks and you sold when the stock was, the stock market was high and you bought when the bond market was low mm-hmm. and vice versa. If your bonds are up 50%, you sell, you sell 25%, you reinvest that back into your stocks to balance the portfolio. And by doing that, you're selling when the bond market's high and you're buying when the stock market isn't. Because the bond market and the stock market act opposite of one another. 
when the yeah. stocks are up, bonds are low. When bonds are up, when bonds are up, stocks are low. So I think that could be an, an, an that was a very interesting approach that I read. Nick, what are your thoughts? No, I like it, and it's and it's definitely uh, what's the term like uh, not not it's a uh, like like it's definitely a a good approach to investing and and to limit you know lo- like huge losses or it's like geez I should have sold or I should have bought and you know you shouldn't second guess yourself because if you knew how the market was going to react, you would make even way more money. <laughs> you, no one knows. You could never time the market. So if you, you know, like Anthony said, Oh, like if you have a, have a good ratio and stick with it. Yeah. And, and like Anthony said, the stock market and the bond market do, do not talk to each other. Like, like, like they both don't go up. Yeah. So, so that approach definitely sounds, sounds like the way to go. Yeah, and there are other approaches you can make. Um, that's just how to rebalance your portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going in terms of dividends, I like doing the, the 10, 11, 12 rule. So it's in 10 years, you want 11% yield on cost, and then you have 12% annualized returns over that time span. If you reinvest your dividends, the 12% is easy to do. The 11% is easy to do if they grow at 10% per year. And then just let it ride for 10 years. See what happens. Right. Long term. That's the way to go. You have an approach that you like when you construct your por- uh, portfolio or right now, do you care more about just bu- like creating the building blocks for a portfolio? Yeah. So like right now, like I only really started investing in March after our internship. And like that, that was like an amazing time to buy. And I really wasn't looking at bonds. I was at, like the first week I started investing, I, I was just throwing money. I was like, you know what? This looks cool. This looks cool. And then I just sat down. I was like, wait a minute. Let's think about the future really quick. And that's when, you know, I was looking at dividend, um, high dividend, not high, but like stable dividends because nothing's guaranteed. You can, you can always find a stable dividend like AT&T or Coke or Pepsi. So that's where I, uh, that's where my mind really went to when investing. Um, should I stay on the conservative, uh, conservative, conserved, conservative side? Of course, you know, you should always, but I feel like at our young age, we can afford to be more aggressive and bonds should definitely be in people's portfolio too, as a safe side. Like even if you don't want to invest in stocks at this moment, and you don't want your cash just sitting there losing value in the bank, put your money in bonds until you're ready to buy some stock. Mm. I feel like that would be a great approach too for, and even if you own stock and you know, you, you have that mindset, I'm gonna put at least 20 or 50% of my paycheck into the market, but you don't wanna buy just yet because you might have a gut feeling that the prices are too high. Instead of it just staying in the bank, keep it in the bonds. Yeah, I think I want to highlight the one thing you said, though, is like we're at such a young age that we should be aggressive. Like personally, disclaimer, I don't own any bonds. I'm completely into equity between, between index funds and stocks. That's all I own. I plan to incorporate some kind of bond uh, index fund into my investments, uh, uh, specifically my Roth IRA. 
because mm. I, I want to hedge myself long term because I don't really want, plan on trading or looking at my IRA that much. But feel that. I, I, I want to try to incorporate that bond stock technique possibly into my IRA, see how that goes. But I think if you're a young investor, I think limit the amount of exposure you have to bonds because the return is rather, it's, it's pretty much fixed, the return. And the return you're going to get is rather small. I think bonds are a great way to preserve what you have. Yes. Stocks are a great way to create what you don't have. <laughs> Stocks cr- create wealth. Bonds maintain wealth. That's why rich people or people towards retirement invest in bonds because they don't want to lose yeah. it. So I think you want to, if you're young, maybe, I think, uh, what was it? Acorns, I think, has like a 10% bonds or 5% bonds and 95% equity or 95% stock equity. I think that might be a good rule of thumb if you want to have some diversity in your portfolio, something to that effect. Also, remember that if you invest in a bond in a company, you are more likely to get paid as a bondholder than a common stockholder if the company goes bankrupt. So always keep that in mind too. But, but we try to invest in any companies that might go bankrupt. But who knows? You should also keep in mind that company bonds are a lot different than like federal bonds, like mm. government bonds. And some co- uh, corporate bonds pay out very well. Like they, some yeah. of them pay out like five to seven percent. But those bonds are also like J.C. Penny. <laughs> so take into account the company you're buying a bond from, because. Mm-hmm. There are credit ratings. If it's AAA, you're solid. But AAA is probably going to be like a less sub 1% yield. Yeah. You can get a junk bond, but that means the credit rating is terrible. But the, the rate's going to be insane. So do your research. I'm not huge on bonds, especially at RH. Like I said, it preserves wealth. Preserves mm-hmm. wealth. It doesn't create it. But if you want to have some diversity, you can incorporate some of them into your portfolio. So that's what I wanted to talk about when it came to investing with the portfolios. I think maybe having a systematic approach, you want to eliminate all emotion possible from your investments because I think emotions kill you. You need to be a robot when you invest. You need to be emotionless. Mm. And I feel like if you have some kind of system in place where you, you kind of force yourself to buy, I think another thing is you consistently put yourself into the market on a, a regular basis. So whenever you get a paycheck, buy. It'll it's it's called dollar averaging. If you do it over a long term basis, you're going to make a lot of money because you're not timing the market, but you'll always buy when the market's low. Always remember, even even if you don't buy low, buy high and sell higher. Yeah, even if you buy at the highest point, you can buy at the you're still gonna buy at the lowest point too. It's gonna balance out. It's a win. It's a win win solution in my book. And if you, I don't know if, uh, if you watched my latest YouTube video, I went over a statistic. If you, since 1980, so from 1980 to today for the past 40 years, if you missed the bet, if you missed the best 50 days on the stock market on the S&P 500, you would have made less than one tenth what you would have made if you kept it in there, and didn't touch it. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like $700,000 you would have made. But if you 
missed the fit best 50 days, it was like $60,000. So that's what happens when you try to time the market and you try to be, you try to outsmart people who do this professionally. It's not going to happen. <laughs> you're making them win. <laughs> yeah, you're making them money. They're like, oh, look at this idiot. More shares for me. <laughs> Just hold and you know what? Buy some more. Keep well, buying. Always buy more. Keep adding. I mean, unless it's Enron or JCPenney. Nicola. Nicola. Which is, we'll get, we, we might get into Nicola next episode when things are more clear about what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, try, try to be more systematic if you want to sell. I think that makes selling easier because I have a difficulty selling. And I think if I incorporate that into my portfolio, it'll make things a lot easier and I'll automatically generate a profit because mm. I'll always sell high. I wouldn't sell low. You were always once the youngest person on earth and not anymore. Exactly. <laughs> so the last thing we, we um, I want to cover before we wrap things up. Is, and that's what I wanted to make sure that whenever we talk, we talk about facts because we don't want to satire the page is because. Personal imaging, personal branding. So yeah, I think it was yesterday. I sent Nick a video. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> The YouTuber is actually very good. His name is Coffeezilla. And he does videos basically exploiting like these fake internet gurus who sell courses, do Forex, crypto, all this nonsense. Like he basically outs all these scammers online. He's very good at what he does. I recommend checking him out. I binge watched him for the past two days. But (laughs) the video I sent him had to do with Kevin O'Leary. And Kevin O'Leary is Mr. Wonderful. Mr. Wonderful. From Shark Tank. And as you know, if you listen to last episode, Nick and I actually quoted him Yeah. on the podcast. We thought really highly of Kevin O'Leary. Not but anymore. this guy made me reconsider how much I look up to the guy. So, for reference, I think Kevin O'Leary is worth $450 million. He's worth a lot of money. But... He was popping up on all of these small businesses' websites, giving them shout-outs. And some of them were rather shady. There were people who were entrepreneurs or gurus who were selling courses, and yet yet they had a video advertisement, a video testimonial from Mr. Wonderful himself saying, this guy is the next up-and-coming entrepreneur, yada, yada, yada. So I'm like, what's going on? This guy kevin o'leary was selling shout outs on cameo for twelve hundred dollars a pop no matter how shady the business was he was doing testimonials he was doing these recommendations for all of these uh small companies for a a measly twelve hundred dollars as long as you give him a list and twelve hundred dollars of what to say he'll say it and the YouTuber uh, I'm talking about really points out how it destroys any credibility that the guy has because the yeah. guy is seen as such a big, a successful baller. businessman. Hmm? As a baller. You know. He's seen as such a, a successful guy on Shark Tank. Like he's making all these dreams come true. He's straight to the point, all yeah. business. But he's basically selling himself out for some profit. And that's, $1,200 for me, like I do it because, you know, I have no money. 
If I had $450 million in net worth, $1,200 is absolute peanuts to me. Throw on top of that, the, the guy has a rather successful YouTube channel, a successful TV show, and he has his whole capital venture firm. Yeah. And, and on top of being an ETF manager, he's a, he, it's a big guy on Wall Street. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, it's O'Shares ETF. Oh. <laughs> so his reputation, in my opinion, is ruined. Like, I don't see Kevin O'Leary in the same light. I totally agree. And now I think anything that's attached to his name has that, in the, like, that comes back to me in the back of my mind. Like, well, this guy did this shady stuff. Like, like you know, you know Graham Stephan, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. YouTuber. Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of Graham Stephan. I watch his channel. Kevin O'Leary was recently on his channel. Really? Like they, did a, they did a collab together. And I thought at first I was like, wow, that's such like Graham really came a long way. He's speaking to this guy, like this successful businessman. And I'm thinking to myself now, I'm like, did he pay him? Oh, did, did no way. You think so? I'm not saying he did or he didn't, but it's now the thought is there. Like I but can't do no. that yeah. thought because he ruined his image. You're like, right. Nick, what were your initial thoughts when I, sh- I showed you that? At first. I was like, oh, cool. Like, he's helping this business out. And then when I heard that, you know, he was doing it for money and for 1200 a pop. And, you know, he just starts talking about businesses like, oh, you should go to them and them. Like, people trusted him, right? Like, you, you said, like, oh, I love Kevin. Like, not love, but, like, like, you looked up to him. So when you see all these businesses that he's recommending, you would think that he knows the business and he himself would really recommend it. But, no, he's just getting paid and using his – fame to get these people's um commercials out and to get people to them and i I feel like it's not right and other sharks on shark tank have done it too uh damon john is the founder of fubu i think he's worth 60 70 million dollars and he did a whole testimonial for a guy doing real estate and the guy's a scam artist that was also highlight that was highlighting the video too these people really need to do backgrounds of the people they're really going to be talking to if it really isn't about the money, if they didn't need the money. I think it's a cash grab. Like, I think Kevin O'Leary is a very he, money. He's a money hungry guy. And I think yeah. that's not, I think that's not the way to go. I think having some kind of integrity with your reputation <laughs> goes a long way. And Especially when he does big things like Walt, like he's in, involved with Wall Street. Yeah. He is a big television personality. He basically gives financial advice on CNBC now. And it's like, you're doing all this promotion for all these shady people. Yeah, no. Yeah, so it's like, I don't know and how that. For those reasons, I'm out. Say that again? And for those reasons, I'm out. Exactly. So I think <laughs> the the takeaway here is, you shouldn't do anything that ruins your personal image towards others. Like don't sell yourself out. I wouldn't do a a cash grab like what Kevin O'Leary did just because a decent payday. I think your reputation, if you have an intact reputation, people trust you, love what you do, love your product. If you're selling a product or your service, if you're giving a service, that's going to make you more money later down the line because you're going to have a more loyal following. 
in the case of Kevin O'Leary, I was a big supporter of Kevin O'Leary. Like, I would watch his content. On, I, I watched his content on YouTube. I watched Shark Tank. H- however, he went a different route in the sense where he, uh, he did this cash grab. He pleased these people who weren't really interested in him and the content he provided, but rather his name recognition and what it would do for them and their business. And by doing that, you kind of alienated all the people who really liked you. Like, I don't see him in the same light. I'm sure you don't see him in the same light. And I'm sure a lot of other people who know this don't see him in the same light either. Like maybe it would have been different or it would have been different if he went to like, let's say charities and started talking about them with no money involved. That would be different. Like let's say, you know, him and a St. Jude's commercial. But not, you know, for companies that just pay you with a script and $1,200 just to talk, you know, oh, you guys should visit him. You don't even know who they are. And not only that, it's like, if, it's, if it were a reputable business where it's like, <laughs> if it was like, oh, this small-time accounting firm has like, like, okay, he looks at the business, he meets the people, and then he takes the $1,200, sure, that's fine. It's like you're doing a brand deal. But that small accounting firm's been having audits with their clients. Or there is no accounting firm. They just steal the people's money and launder it. Like he didn't look he didn't look into the reputation of any of these businesses. He didn't even go as as far as the website. If he did, I lose even more respect for him because the reps the, the businesses look more and more shady the more you and more you look into them. And the worst part is he never said it was a promotion or a sponsorship. He basically said it. He said it was like a, as a genuine recommendation. And all yeah. these businesses were using it as like they're friends with him. <laughs> so. It's crazy. Yeah. I think it's ridiculous. And it just Ruin shows. Say it again? Ru- ruins your brand. Exactly. And it shows you how important it is to keep your brand intact and have integrity. Hundred percent. Even not, even not for like famous reasons. It's just you as a genuine person. And and like what we said before, like ethics. Like, ethics. Like, it's a nice ethics little. Before. We're closing it out where we started with business <laughs> ethics. Who would have thought that people that know us would never have thought that Anthony and Nick were talking about ethics on a our business podcast. <laughs> Disclaimer, he didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all yeah, jokes. No, all jokes. That's a big part of finance and accounting. Yeah. To get your CPA or, or your uh, bar license or maybe even your Series 7, you've got to take ethics if you, every CFA, time you review it. For your CFA, financial ethics is an entire section of the exam. <laughs> and honestly, you can go you can go to prison as, lo- as like, like a murderer yeah. like you you can bernie madoff <laughs> bernie madoff's in prison for life i think he has two life terms. i mean he also robbed like billions and billions of dollars from investors but, but yeah no it's still you insider yeah. trading insider trading is a bigger sentence than if you were to rape someone or if you were to rob someone like with a gun yeah. like you serve you could serve as much as like 15 years in prison for insider trading yeah and, and, and you know it's valid to be honest. Like, and honestly, you can make it could be a mistake. Like, it could happen by mistake, and like that's 
something you need to be aware of as an this is kind of a side thing, but like you need to be aware of your company's policies in terms of trading. Some companies might be restricted based on your company's policy. So always look into that. You can never, you can never plead ignorance because ignorance is never an acceptable uh, excuse when you, when it comes to the law, but don't commit fraud. Don't, don't don't launder money. It's not worth it. You get involved with the wrong people. You can't read the benefits of what you sow legally and fruitfully you can't enjoy it to the fullest so i think you know just stay on the legal side of things <laughs> and always use ethics you could lose your license yeah like one of our uh, professors you know great guy he said that like there are a lot of guys who say they pass all four parts of the cpa exam on their resume because they can't no they can't say they're a cpa Oh, they no have way. legal They had legal troubles. Oh, so they, wow. they can't get the certification, but they pass all four parts of the exam. So what was the difference? <laughs> They're not certified. They, yeah, they so can't they put it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's wow. like, it happens. People go to prison. They lose out on opportunities because they get greedy. And that's not the way to go. You need to have an ethical approach when it comes to finances. I think good things come to people who do good. Yes, long term. Long, long-term mindset with everything. Long-term mindset. Get 20 grand now and lose your license tomorrow or make 20 grand in the long run. Exactly. And keep your license. Exactly. It's not easy, too, to get your CPA license. They, some people say it's harder than getting your law license. Passing we the should, bar exam. We, we should know very soon because we are about to get our CPAs in the, <laughs> the next year, hopefully. But... It's going to be a long, lengthy process, and yeah. it's going to be difficult. I've not, I've not heard anyone say otherwise, and I, these are smart people telling me this, and I'm very nervous. They would be losing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a good way to end it. Business ethics should ethics should always come first. Ethics should be a priority. You shouldn't prioritize bottom lines over no. how you treat other people, because at the end, it's going to come back to bite you in some way or another. Just look at all these. Celebrities that get arrested, like yeah, no matter how powerful you are, you get in trouble somehow. But no yeah, one's above the law. No one's above the law, and the IRS is a ninety-nine percent conviction rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how they got off the phone. You're more likely what to go to jail for tax fraud than murdering someone, probably. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I'm not saying murder someone, but and we're not your, saying do tax fraud. But pick your, pick what you do wisely. Pick what you do wisely. Yes. All right, Nick, anything you want to say before you, we wrap up? No, no, I just want to say thank you, Anthony. You know, this this is, you know, very been an informative talk like always. And let's just say the disclaimer one more time just in case. So I'll pull it up in a minute. But I want to thank you guys again for listening to the podcast. It means a lot to Nick and I, or me and Nick, grammatically correct there. Um, <laughs> it means a lot to the two of us. Uh, Nick and I. Nah, me and Nick. Nick and I. All right. But it means, a lot. it means a lot to the two of us. <laughs> we have a lot of fun making the podcast. And we hope you learned something. We hope we get something out of this. And and we've just been approved for Apple Podcast. Yeah. I mean, wherever you're listening to us now, we're on that platform. We're also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So feel free to check us out there. Um. There's a YouTube channel. I might po- 
upload these videos to YouTube. If it's already on YouTube and your watch is on YouTube, what's up? But like subscribe, like, subscribe, subscribe down below. Subscribe to the podcast actually too. Yeah, yeah. Any platform. But yeah, thank you guys for listening. Send in your questions if you ever want to talk about anything. Oh, yeah, you can send in questions through the Instagram, Common Sense Finance Instagram. You can, I don't know how else you can contact me. You can contact. Yeah. DM us. Our emails are linked in the description. Our not emails, our Instagrams. I'm not giving you my email, guys. I'm sorry. I have enough, I have enough spam in my inbox. I can't go through all of it. I'm sorry. We don't want to, we don't want to miss your, your questions. I don't want to miss your questions. I, my, it, my DMs are dry. I have a girlfriend, so it's not like people are trying to hit me up. <laughs> you can go through my, you can DM us on Instagram. Professional inquiries only. No. I mean, you can give me a good joke. A good joke's okay, but yeah. a funny meme once a in a funny while. Meme, you know, like a, a stock meme. Nick and yeah. I love accounting memes. That's that's, that's what it, that's, that's, keep, that's our kryptonite. The stock, the <laughs> accounting memes get us every single time. <laughs> All right, guys. Nick and I are not certified financial professionals. All articles and posts are opinions ex- expressed by Nick and me contributors to the common sense finance platform the information provided is not a research report or a financial advice it should not be used as the basis to buy or sell a security nor is it an offer to buy or sell a security disclaimers some of the stocks we mentioned on the podcast including apple nicola at&t microsoft um, microsoft are positions held by either nick or me um I believe those are all the positions that we talked about on the podcast. Yeah. But, oh, and Amazon. Amazon's. Amazon. Yeah, so we, uh, we own positions in Amazon. So, <laughs> just a few, few disclaimers to get out there because I don't want to get sued. Thank you guys for listening. Until next time. Until I, don't next. Know what, I don't know when that's going to be, but hopefully you're listening when it does. <laughs> Nick and I are not certified financial professionals. All things said in this podcast are opinions expressed by me and Nick, contributors to the Common Sense Finance platform. The information provided is not a research report or financial advice. It should not be used as the basis to buy or sell a security, nor is it an offer to buy or sell a security.